70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. KBS 日本語放送のリスナーラジオネームゆずと申します。私の聴取歴は今年で3年目です。my radio name is Yutsu, and I'm a regular listener of KBS World Radio Japanese Service. I live in Sapporo, Hokkaido. My listening experience of three years is nothing compared to long-time listeners, but I tune in daily because it is so interesting. KBS World Radio Japanese Service is like a friend who brings updates from Korea. I can get information about my favorite K-dramas and movies, while I can communicate with other listeners through listener comments on all the programs. I did a phone interview earlier this year, and the listeners were so kind. It's become a great memory for me. After the COVID-19 restrictions were lifted, I see many Korean tourists here in Hokkaido. I plan to visit Seoul to experience Korea firsthand. I promise I will keep tuning in. I love you, KBS World Radio Japanese Service. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Wednesday, the 20th of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang The first cold wave warning of the winter season is set to be issued for Seoul, and heavy snow warnings have been issued in the north Chungcheong and Jeolla provinces. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we'll analyse why North Korea might be closing diplomatic missions overseas and how it appears to fit into an overall strategy of de-risking. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we have a dystopian short story by Chun Myung-gwang exploring themes on capitalism and inequality. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. The nation is bracing for an Arctic cold front as the mercury is set to plunge minus 15 degrees Celsius in the capital on Thursday, and similar frosty temperatures are expected throughout the country. Our news editor, Kui Jin, joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest weather update as well as our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, jang So, snow flurries may have ebbed in Seoul and surrounding areas, but heavy snowfall is expected in other regions now. Can you update us on the latest? Well, heavy snow is expected in North Chungcheong and the Jolla provinces, as you said, as well as on Jeju Island, with up to 20 centimetres expected for the central province, around 50 centimetres or more in the western parts of Jolla provinces, and at least 70 centimetres for the mountain areas of Jeju on Thursday. 
Along with the heavy precipitation in some parts of the country, Thursday is forecast to bring the coldest day so far this winter, with the temperature in Seoul dropping to negative 15 degrees Celsius. Seoul is expected to issue its first cold wave warning this winter, with the same alert issued for parts of Gyeonggi, Gangwon and Chungcheong provinces as of 9pm Wednesday. Cold wave warnings are issued between October and April when morning lows are expected to be 15 degrees or lower than the previous day or minimum morning temperatures reach minus 15 degrees or lower. Uh, Morning temperatures across the country will range from minus 19 degrees to minus 5, about 7 to 10 degrees lower than today. The Korea Meteorological Administration forecasts that the cold wave will last into the weekend. Right, so our listeners should make sure to wrap up warm over the next few days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's move on now to other headlines. Rival parties on Wednesday finalised the national budget for next year and agreed to pass it in the National Assembly later this week. So it seems a deal was reached. Can you tell us more? Well, the deal was struck in a meeting of the floor leaders and chair of the Parliamentary Special Committee on Budget and Accounts on Wednesday, agreeing uh, to uh, hold a vote on the budget at 10 a.m. Thursday. The final bill is some 4.2 trillion won or some 3 billion U.S. dollars less than the original requested by the government. Uh, Among the compromises was an increase in the contentious research and development budget by 60 billion won, while the funds for Semangum, the site for the catastrophic uh, World Scout Jamboree will increase by 300 billion won. The agreement comes amid a stalemate for more than two weeks as the rival parties contested the request for a 2024 national budget of 659.9 trillion won with items amounting to 56.9 trillion won at the centre of the partisan dispute. Let's shift now to New York, where the UN Security Council convened on Tuesday in response to the intercontinental ballistic missile that North Korea launched on Monday morning. In a disappointing but expected outcome, the body failed to reach a consensus on an approach uh, to the north as China and Russia blocked further action. What can you tell us? Yes, well, the UN Security Council remained uh, divided on ways to deal with North Korea, which fired another intercontinental ballistic missile earlier this week. Now, in the council meeting convened at the UN headquarters in New York on Tuesday, US Ambassador Robert Wood called for an action in the face of opposition from Russia and China. Let's listen to what he had to say. We are grateful that most of this council has condemned the DPRK's mounting threat to international peace and security. Most of this council is committed to upholding the resolutions we adopted. Most of this council does share the same goal of denuclearization. Now it is on Russia and China to join us, to act as if their credibility as a responsible permanent members depends on it. The latest launch of a Hwasong-18 was the fifth ICBM test this year and firing the missile in a high-degree angle, it was again made clear that its weapon could reach all the way to the U.S. mainland if fired at a proper trajectory. Chinese investor Gueng uh, Chuang, on the other hand, uh, blamed the U.S., saying that Pyongyang is under military pressure from Washington. A certain country should face up to the crux of the peninsula issue, discard the myth of exerting military pressure, put forward concrete feasible plans for dialogue and turn its remarks about unconditional dialogue into reality. Through practical actions, it can help advance the process of finding a political solution 
to the peninsula issue and thus safeguard peace and stability on the peninsula. After the meeting, South Korea, the U.S., Japan and Britain issued a joint statement most strongly condemning the North's ICBM launch and other past ballistic missile provocations. And putting their words into action, South Korea, the U.S. and Japan held a joint aerial exercise involving a U.S. B-1B strategic bomber on Wednesday in the wake of the ICBM launch. Can you tell us more? Well, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said the combined drill was held over an overlapping section of South Korea and Japan's air defence identification zones east of Jeju Island. Uh, Wednesday marked the 13th time this year a U.S. strategic bomber has been deployed to the Korean Peninsula and the second time this year, the three allies held a joint aerial exercise. The latest drill saw the participation of South Korean F-15K fighter jets, the US F-16 Fighting Falcon jets and Japan's F-2 support fighter aircraft. The JCS said the exercise was arranged to implement defence-related accords discussed at the Camp David summit in April to boost the allies' response to the North's threats uh, involving nuclear weapons and missiles and to demonstrate the three nations' strong intent to jointly respond to such threats. Meanwhile, Foreign Minister nominee Cho Tae-yeol said South Korea's ties with China are as important as those with the US as he pledged to seek ways to maintain a harmonious relationship with Beijing. Uh, what else did he say? Well, speaking to reporters on Wednesday, Cho said China is seemingly well aware that it is inve- inevitable for its strategic rivalry with the US to have a range of impacts on ties with Seoul. The nominee vowed to seek opportunities to further develop the bilateral relationship in an amicable and harmonious manner based on shared interests. Addressing concerns over the Yoon suk administration's policy tilt towards deeper ties with the US and Japan, Cho said it is part of the efforts to strike a balance from the previous administration's disposition in the opposite direction. He also pledged to pursue a resumption of a trilateral summit between the leaders of Seoul, Tokyo and Beijing after four years. Let's turn now to some business news. Hyundai Motor Company has decided to sell its plant in Russia, which had suspended operations since March of last year due to the Russia-Ukraine war. Can you tell us more on the decision? Well, the automaker said on Tuesday that its board approved the sale of Hyundai Motor Manufacturing uh, Rus in uh, St. Petersburg, as well as a General Motors plant it bought in 2020 in the same city. The Russian uh, firm Art Finance is purchasing the plants for 10,000 rubles or around 145,000 won. Hyundai said the low price is in consideration of an option to buy back the operations in two years' time. Hyundai will continue to provide repair services for vehicles that have already been sold. HMMR is Hyundai Motor's sixth production base uh, overseas. It began operating in 2011, a year after its construction was completed. And finally, a special bill to ban the slaughter of dogs for consumption has passed a parliamentary standing committee here in South Korea. Can you tell us more? Well, the Committee on Agriculture, Food and Fisheries approved the bill stipulating a ban on breeding and slaughtering of dogs, as well as the distribution of meat for uh, consumption during a plenary session on Wednesday. The bill also includes a clause on mandatory state support for breeders, butchers, distributors and restaurant owners in the industry as they transition into other types of businesses. 
the government, uh, the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party have all expressed support for passing such a bill within the year. That's where we'll wrap it up for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. North Korea is closing some of its key diplomatic missions abroad. It recently shut down missions in Senegal and Guinea. This follows closures of embassies in Angola, Nepal, Bangladesh, Spain and Uganda in recent months. While some observers say that these shutdowns are a sign of the North's economic troubles amid persistent international sanctions, Professor Rudiger Frank, a noted expert on North Korea, says economic problems have persisted for a long time and are therefore not sufficient to explain the recent series of embassy closures. Instead, he says, they are an indicator of Pyongyang's long-term strategy of de-risking, a shift from managing risk to avoiding it. To explore this thought further, we have invited him on the show today. Joining us on the line from Austria is Rudiger Frank, Professor of East Asian Economy and Society at the University of Vienna. Professor Frank, hello and thank you for your time. Hello from Vienna. Before we get into your analysis, Professor Frank, can you summarise for our listeners some of North Korea's recent shutdowns of embassies and other missions overseas? What were the most significant and notable ones? Well, I think you already mentioned all of them. So I think it's a total of nine embassies closed. Some of that still needs to be verified. Uh, five of them in Africa, three in Asia and one in Europe, the one in Spain. To me, actually, these five embassy closures in Africa are the most significant um, because on one hand, North Korea has been very active. there, also trying to export their Juche ideology for decades. And uh, there have also been um, ample business opportunities there. So probably from that uh, perspective, these five stick out. But of course, uh, in total, all these client closures, they really matter a lot. Right. So we're seeing a clear pattern and it seems like the closures are for good, right, Professor? Well, I mean, in this world, nothing is for good. And if you follow North Korea, as I have been doing for 30 years, then you've seen your downs, but also ups and then downs again. So it's it's very well possible that two or three years from now, we will be talking about all these embassies being reopened again. But for now, that's the situation. <clears throat> and it seems that this is a trend that is continuing. So it might not yet be over. I see. So amid that backdrop, in a recent commentary you wrote for uh, 38 North, you said the closures are an indicator of Pyongyang's long-term strategy of de-risking. Can you expand on that for us a bit more? What risks do you believe North Korea was taking by operating missions overseas? And what are these risks from the perspective of the North Korea leadership? This is a truly fascinating topic. I mean, this whole risk-taking by the North Korean side has been keeping me busy since the mid to late 1990s, actually, because they were really... It's not just opening uh, missions abroad. It was also about uh, trying something like domestic economic reforms, reaching out to their former enemies, uh, thereby also exposing themselves to various types of risk. So... um, 
but focusing on these embassies, uh, that's part of this story. Uh, one risk are uh, obviously defections of embassy employees. Uh, Mr. Taeyong Ho, for example, is, I think, uh, known to everyone in uh, South Korea. Um, other employees of embassies might not necessarily defect, but they may nevertheless decide to cooperate with Western intelligence services because they are more exposed to being contacted. Also, you know, if the United States has even hacked German Chancellor Angela Merkel's mobile phone in 2015, then we can uh, assume that North Korean missions abroad are also at the risk of being under surveillance, wiretapping or something by Western intelligence services. Um, then a more unconventional risk, admittedly, is what happened in the case of the North Korean embassy in Madrid in early 2019, where which was attacked by the Free Chosun Group and, uh, amongst other things, computers and hard disk drives were stolen. So to summarize, the more embassies there are and the more North Korean individuals are outside the country, the bigger are these risks uh, that uh, North Korea is facing. Right. So why is then North Korea reconsidering these risks now? What's changed and why are they pivoting towards this new de-risking strategy, as you've described it? I mean, I really need to say that we are, of course, second-guessing the intentions of the North Korean leadership, which is always a bit of a difficult task. But let's just speculate. Um, it seems that the North Korean leader, and I think such a decision must come from the very top, has initiated a re-evaluation of the various risks that his system has been taken in the last, say, 25 years or something, including economic reforms, but also opening the country to tourism, um, and external diplomatic activities, including inter-Korean relations, Kaesong Industrial Zone, Mount Kumgang tourism, and so on. So simply speaking, uh, anybody takes risks if he expects a benefit or if there is no other option. And I think since the early 90s, North Korea has been in such a situation. As we know, the country was more or less alone without the socialist camp that was gone, without its former socialist allies. The Soviet Union and China even opened diplomatic relations with the arch enemy South Korea, and they stopped providing generous economic aid. So North Korea had no other choice but to look for other partners and other ways, especially after the big economic crisis and famine of the 1990s. So now I think this cost-benefit evaluation of the North Korean regime has changed. The country now has nuclear weapons, including an arsenal of missiles to use them as a deterrent. And most importantly, the new Cold War, um, as I call it, has received a major boost due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and let's not forget that the bilateral relationship between the United States and China is also getting worse despite uh, occasional diplomatic show events. So North Korea is now part of a camp again, as they had been before 1990 they can expect to get all they need from this camp and therefore the risks are no longer needed and so they adjust their policies step by step and in various fields. Right, so the closures of the uh, diplomatic missions are example uh, of this uh, de-risking. What other examples uh, have we been seeing that uh, perhaps backs up uh, this speculation uh, that uh, you have uh, put forth? Well, there are numerous examples. I mean, just uh, think about uh, in 2005 when North Korea started changing its policy towards um, humanitarian aid organizations when they asked to switch from uh, aid to uh, developmental assistance. 
Then um, a few years later, um, the North Korean leaders started uh, talking more about restoring the power and the role of the state in the economy. We had the 2009 currency reform, which was obviously an attempt to crack down on the newly emerging middle class and the uh, Donju in North Korea, you know, kind of smaller capitalists. We have the fate of uh, North Korean Chebol, uh, KKG, for example, uh, a company that had been very, very active and prominent in various business fields in North Korea. Suddenly it disappeared or was split up. Um, yeah, I, the whole crackdown on ideological issues. Remember, in recent years, Kim Jong-un has been very vocal about um, the um, non-socialist or anti-socialist behavior at the recent Congress of Mothers. He mentioned, again, problems with youth and trying to get them back under ideological control. Um, in terms of quantitative indicators, if you look at the number of defectors from North Korea who reached South Korea, that number has never been really that impressively high in the range of 1,500 a year, but now it's down to below 100 annually. So all these things taken together, they show us a pattern that has emerged over the years. It's a gradual process, mm. and uh, that's why North Korea is also taking the opportunities as they uh, pop up. Well, that's a fascinating insight. Then looking at the bigger picture, what does it mean for Korean Peninsula affairs down the road as North Korea has opted this de-risking strategy? What are the implications for policymakers in Seoul and Washington moving forward then? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to just uh, acknowledge that situation and to try to develop ways for dealing with it, right? And um, to start with the bad news, I think North Korea is now less desperate than it has been before. I don't really think they were too desperate anyway, but now they are even less so. They don't need South Korea's economic support anymore. They don't need U.S. security uh, uh, guarantees anymore. They don't even need an easing of sanctions anymore because these sanctions are effectively dead. Existing sanctions are or will be ignored by Moscow and Beijing. New sanctions are being vetoed at the UN Security Council. So North Korea will only accept talks or cooperation projects if they are not risky and if they are beneficial for Pyongyang. Clearly, this will be challenging for our politicians, especially in South Korea, where they can easily be criticized as naive if they give Kim Jong-un too much and receive nothing. So it has an implication for, I don't know, public messaging, actually, for various uh, engagement policies with North Korea. The good news is, um, and that is maybe something that is, um, well, we need a second thought to come up with this. We know from the first Cold War, North Korea will want to manipulate its own allies in order to maximize, uh, to maximize its benefits from them. This can be done by playing these allies against each other. That's what they've been doing in the past, playing Moscow against Beijing. But they can also use the West for that purpose. Opens a window for Seoul and for Washington to remain in the game to a degree and also to, cre to create some disturbance in the opposite camp. But seriously, we need to be very realistic about the North Korean intentions here. The North Korean leadership is only loyal to itself and to mm. nobody else. It puts its own interest before everything even more than Donald Trump with his America First policy. So this, I think, needs to be understood. Yeah, so North Korea only looks out for itself. You said they're perhaps less desperate uh, than ever. So does that mean that denuclearization of North Korea is farther than it's ever been? What do you think 
nor, uh, policymakers in Seoul, Washington can do to perhaps go back on that path? We have not seen nuclear talks, of course, uh, since the Hanoi summit between former uh, U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. Well, as I <clears throat> as I mentioned before, talks are clearly an option, but denuclearization is not. I don't know any expert who would really think that denuclearization is even a remote possibility. But that said, we should also note that the last nuclear test has been in 2017, and that is already six years ago and and counting. Uh, so far, Kim Jong Un. Uh, seems to perceive the risk of having another nuclear test as bigger than the benefit of such a test. So for now, he seems to feel safe enough. What Seoul and Washington should do is to be aware uh, that Pyongyang is abroad and long-term mission of de-risking. If we give them the opportunity to undo a measure, they will take it. Um, as we could, for example, observe a few weeks ago with the termination of the 2018 Comprehensive Military Agreement, so North Korea's de-risking is not yet over. But on the nuclear front, um, if we are able to maintain the status quo, I think we should really be happy with that. Well, it is a really interesting insight and perhaps uh, causing us to reassess how we deal with North Korea going forward. As ever, it's uh, never easy with North Korea. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Rudiger Frank from the University of Vienna. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you and goodbye. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 45.75 points, or 1.78% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,614.30. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 4.68 points, or 0.55%, to close at 862.98. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 8.91 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,298.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segments where we look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online. For that, we have joining us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, Zhang Wu. Okay. What do you have for us first today? We have some updates on the Gyeongbok Palace vandalism incident that took place over the weekend. Yes. So these were two incidents that took place over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday and shocked the nation, frankly. Someone had spray painted the walls of Gyeongbokgung Palace with red spray paint. Uh, We discussed this on the show on Monday. And the latest development then was uh, that a man in his 20s turned himself in, admitting to the second incident. And it turned out that it was a copycat crime of the first incident. And now... The two perpetrators of the first incident have been arrested by the police as well. It turns out they were teenagers, right? Yes, according to Seoul Jongno Police Station, authorities arrested a 17-year-old male suspect surnamed Im in his residence in Suwon at around 7 p.m. Tuesday for violating several laws, including the Protection of Cultural Property Law. He vandalized both sides of the western gate of the palace and a gate of the National Palace Museum of Korea on Saturday with spray paint. Im confessed to carrying out the crime and throwing away the tools at the site. A 16-year-old female friend of his, surnamed Yang, was also arrested, but she later told police that she did not participate in the criminal act. And the reason they gave for carrying out this act of vandalism 
was rather surprising as well. Yeah, the two teens were reportedly offered money to carry out the act. Im spray painted the link to an spray painted the link to an illegal file sharing site. We also now know that the site closed down on Monday. Police said the investigation could not be carried out expeditiously due to various factors. It is harder to get warrants on weekends, and arresting teen suspects can be a complicated process. Mm, I see. So, what are authorities doing as a follow-up measure to this incident now? The Cultural Heritage Administration is working hard to ensure the affected parts are restored quickly. However, the process is proving to be challenging, with some equipment like air compressors failing due to the sub-zero temperatures we're experiencing these days. Uh, to prevent recurrence, the administration also plans to install around 20 more surveillance cameras around the exterior of Gyeongbok Palace. Well, thankfully, at least the perpetrators have been caught quickly, and hopefully that will deter anyone else who might consider defacing historical landmarks in this way. Hopefully no more copycat crimes. But yes, it is uh, a story that, as I said, uh, shocked the nation, and thankfully it is closed now. Uh, let's move on to the second story. What do you have for us? We talked last week about how Korean pro baseball star Lee Jong-hoo signed a six-year, $113 million contract with the San Francisco Giants in the MLB. A record amount for a KBO player crossing over to the majors. He returned home from the U.S. on Tuesday afternoon and shared his thoughts about the deal with his fans and reporters. Yes, he was given a hero's welcome at Incheon International Airport, or should I say, Kium Heroes <laughs> welcome. That is his former team, of course, the Kium Heroes. But yes, anyway, uh, that was uh, uh, a great reception for him at the airport. What did he have to share with the home crowd upon his return? The first revelation that caught many by surprise is that the Giants were the first to extend an offer, and they offered an amount that could be considered quite shocking from the get-go. Just last month, his super agent, Scott Boris, got to work, reaching out to almost half of the teams in the league to find the right suitor. Back then, he made it clear, based on how much teams are fighting to win over two other big fish in the free agent pond, Shohei Otani and Yoshinobu Yamamoto, that it will be difficult to receive an offer exceeding $100 million. But an offer over $100 million he received indeed. So what was his initial reaction upon learning about the fast developments back then? Well, he never imagined he'd get an offer this big and substantial this quick from a team with championship pedigree. He admitted that he literally went weak in the knees upon hearing about the news. Compared to his seniors in the sport who went through the same process, he is getting a record amount in record time. So he was deeply moved by the San Francisco team's gesture. The Giants wanted to show their newest edition off so badly that they quickly made sure he is hogging the spotlight at an NBA game. He did mention he is a huge basketball fan, so the Giants got him a ticket to the San Francisco-based Golden State Warriors home game over the weekend. He was introduced to the fans there via the Jumbotron and given a standing ovation as well. Well, it's great to hear uh, that he's getting such a great reception in San Francisco as well. Uh, the new outfielder also talked about some unfinished business during the presser, right? Yes, indeed. He lived up to the reputation of his father, Lee Jong-bum, who set numerous records in the KBO while also winning MVP. Uh, but for the junior Lee, also called the grandson of the wind, uh, a title that's eluded him so far. So winning a championship is what he most wants to accomplish. He vowed to set specific goals to make sure he plays his part to help the Giants win the World Series. Well, that's quite a statement to make. Hopefully he can back it up. I think everyone is eager to see him get going uh, next season. OK, let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending today? 
Those who took an interest in and watched the FIFA World Cup last year in Qatar would have noticed a new type of technology used to check whether a player was offside or not during a game. It's called semi-automated offside technology, and the Asian Football Confederation, or the AFC, announced Tuesday it will be used in all 51 matches of the upcoming AFC Asian Cup held from January 12th to February 10th next year. Yes, video assistant referees, or VAR, has been introduced in various leagues and competitions around the world uh, for on-field officials to make various calls, including offside. But this is a further tool to try and make that call quicker and more accurately. Can you educate us on how the system works exactly? I'm still educating myself, but I'll try to do what I can to clarify the uh, functions. Twelve dedicated cameras monitor the ball and players' movements. It accurately determines the positions of limbs and other body parts crucial for offside decisions. So if a player receiving the ball is offside, an alert is transmitted to the VAR, uh, who in turn will validate the call using the system and then inform the on-field referee. The exact data points that determine a player's position will be generated into a 3D animation, providing greater convenience for the refs, players and fans who want to check it out. Like you said earlier, the system was used for the previous World Cup and the response had been positive so far, right? Yes, the SAOT system managed to play a part in correcting a wrong call by a human referee just three minutes into the opening game between the home team and Ecuador. Uh, while expectations are high, the pinpoint accuracy of the computer calls would help quell disputes or controversy surrounding offsideism. The flip side to this advancement is how it could impact the uh, for performance of speedy goal getters like Son Heung-min. It could get to your head. Sure, indeed. But hopefully, it will be less controversial than VAR, which a lot of fans have not been happy about. Uh, we'll leave it there for today's career trending. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's Korea Book Club, our weekly segment diving into the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and beyond. With me now in the studio, we have our literary critic, Barry Welsh, with another book to introduce to us. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hello. It's great to be back. Okay, so what book do you have for our listeners this week? So this week we're reviewing a short story called Homecoming. The Korean title is Taegun, and it's by Chun Myung-gwan. It was published in Korean in the early 2010s and translated into English by Jean Miseli and published in English in 2015 by Asia Publishers. Uh, And uh, regular listeners will remember uh, Sean's debut novel, Whale, uh, was a huge success. That was the book that put him on the literary map. And we reviewed recently. Uh, and Sean ha- is famous for his knack for weaving tales that are not just engaging, but are also deeply reflective of Korean society. Uh, his stories often explore the complexities of modern life in Korea, uh, delving into themes like urbanization, uh, the human psyche, and the ever-changing social landscape. But what truly sets Sean uh, apart is his bold and often vivid storytelling style. Uh, he doesn't shy away from the gritty or the controversial. Uh, instead, he often embraces it. 
uh, and uh, depicts uh, stories with words that stay with you long after uh, you've turned the last page. Uh, his works like today's dystopian uh, story, Homecoming, uh, have not only captivated readers here in Korea, but have also garnered international attention in recent years. Uh, and so if you're looking to get a taste of contemporary Korean literature that's raw uh, and real uh, and resonates with the pulse of modern society, uh, then today's story is an excellent uh, choice. Yes, uh, Whale being shortlisted for the International Booker Prize this mm-hmm. year, of course, really brought international attention to Chun and his works as well. So I'm intrigued to hear about this story today, especially because you said it's a dystopian story. Right. So what's it about? Right. So in Homecoming, uh, we have a future soul uh, depicted where there is extreme economic disparity uh, and societal decay uh, have ravaged uh, the South Korean capital. Uh, The story focuses on a father and his half Korean son, and they're part of the impoverished blanket class. Uh, Blankets are people who struggle to survive in the society where only a very few number of people are employed uh, and the vast majority uh, suffer in poverty. Uh, And this father faces a heart-wrenching decision to possibly sell his son uh, in in this uh, modern, sort of, uh, sorry, future soul where human organ trading uh, thrives uh, and adoption is a kind of status symbol. So amidst this very bleak setting, uh, the narrative weaves in themes of wealth disparity, uh, the obsession with office jobs uh, and the human cost of unbridled capitalism. Uh, The story culminates with a a poignant and uh, surprising twist uh, involving the child's long-lost grandfather uh, and this uh, unexpected development underscores the sacrifices that this family have made for economic stability in this sort of uh, modern but future society. Wow, it does sound very bleak indeed, a sort of nightmarish future. So would this be considered science fiction then? What genre does uh, Homecoming fall into? Okay, yeah. So it is it, it is definitely a type of sci-fi novel, uh, but it's a, you know it's a dystopian novel, but it's also more than that. So it's sort of social commentary, really, using the sort of dystopian sci-fi uh, genre to, to comment on things that are happening in the modern world. It paints this sort of future soul where we have these uh, sort of extreme disparities of, of wealth, uh, and it's almost a, a dark mirror showing the potential fallout of, of current trends that we can see all around us in terms of family dynamics. And, and wealth distribution in Korea. What makes it unique, though, is this uh, raw and unfiltered portrayal uh, of a capitalist society gone uh, very much wrong. Uh, but it's not just a story about a bleak uh, future. It's a stark warning. It's a reflection on the paths that we're treading today. Uh, the narrative is very direct, almost brutally uh, direct, and it dives uh, deep into themes like the human organ trade uh, and the ruthless side of bureaucracy. Uh, And I think it's an excellent piece uh, in terms of modern Korean literature for its uh, daring approach to these uh, heavy and significant topics. Right. I think it's perhaps particularly powerful for Korea, where there are criticisms that the society is uh, getting too capitalistic or materialistic Mm -hmm. and where uh, economic inequality is becoming an increasingly uh, growing problem and concern. How does 
the author, Chun Myung-gwang, approach this with his storytelling in this novel? Right, so Chun really doesn't uh, beat around the bush in this story. So from the get-go, you're thrown into a world where uh, a nuclear conflict in the Middle East uh, impacts the global landscape, uh, including, of course, uh, uh, Korea. Uh, And Chun's style is straightforward, almost aggressive in in this uh, sort of directness and honesty. Uh, And the story of this father and son, these, these blankets, the blanket class of people, uh, which is basically the bottom rung of the, the society in this dystopian Korea. His approach is unique because it blends this very stark socio-economic commentary with this deeply personal story of a father and a son. Uh, and he juxtaposes the father's struggle with these uh, broader societal issues, and he does this uh, very well. He makes bold statements about wealth, status, about the human condition in general, uh, but he doesn't lose sort of sight of that emotional uh, core of the story about the, the father and, and his little boy. And so I think it's that blend of personal and uh, the wider uh, societal narrative that anchors homecoming uh, in the realm of of uh, impactful modern literature. Mm. As I mentioned, it sounds like this story will give a lot of food for thought for Korean readers and the commentary that it offers on contemporary Korean society, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a, a, a very punchy and, like I said, a direct uh, comment on modern Korean society. So uh, you almost think of it as a, as a crystal ball showing us a potential uh, possible future. If current trends in Korea continue unchecked, and I'm sure you know, we can all think of examples of, of the trends that people are worried about just now. So what, uh, the, the story is a critique of this intense materialism, uh, you know, the sharp and stark divide between the wealthy and the poor, uh, and and the plight of the protagonists, they're living in a society where only a fraction of people enjoy the privileges of employment and a basic uh, decent life. This is a direct commentary on, like you said, this growing economic divide uh, and the obsession with status that we have in Korea and, of course, other other places too. And what Chon does is he uses the narrative to highlight just the absurdity and tragedy of a society where the dream of a stable office job becomes uh, the only means of survival. So really, it's a a wake-up call, uh, urging readers to reflect on the direction in which society is heading. Uh, It's a critique, it's a warning, and it's a plea all rolled into one. Uh, We don't want to give too much away, but earlier you mentioned the story culminates with a a twist involving the child's grandfather. How does the ending tie into its overall themes. Right, yeah. So the ending of the story does have this sort of uh, strange uh, and surprising ending. It's very thought-provoking. It doesn't tie up the loose ends of the story it instead leaves you reflecting on the broader implications. So the sudden appearance of the child's grandfather, this is a figure who embodies Korea's extreme work culture, the sort of working all day, uh, late hours. Uh, and his reappearance, it serves as a reminder of the sacrifices made in the pursuit of economic stability. So it's a, a, a kind of a narrative twist that underscores the central themes. It's the loss of personal connections, the obsession with work, uh, and the societal cost of relentless capitalism Uh, and the title itself homecoming becomes ironic because it highlights the impossibility of a normal or balanced life uh, in such a skewed society and so it ends not just with a resolution of the story but with a statement about the state of modern society it's a commentary on the loss of humanity in the face of relentless economic pursuit 
Well, it sounds like a powerful book, one that will live long in a reader's memory. And I think it provides a further fascinating insight into the writer Chun as well. So that was Homecoming by Chun Myung-Gwan, and that was our pick for Korea Book Club this week. And Barry, it was also our last book club together for this year, as it's right. Beth's turn next week. Uh-huh. Thank you for all your reviews this year. We look forward to what else you'll bring for us next year. Hope you have a great end of the year, and we'll see you in 2024. Okay, take care. Claudia Cardenas, Taekwondo World Medalist from Ecuador and founder of Himchari Dubujang. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time now for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald, who we thank for providing us with their early editions to make this segment possible. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what's the first article that you have brought for us today? Well, it's that time of the year again. The annual ice skating rink at Seoul Plaza will open on Friday. And that's what E. Heron's article in the national section of the Korea Times is about. Yes, this is an iconic rink, really, Mm. that sees over 100,000 visitors each year. It's very popular with people of all ages. Mm. So what should our listeners who live in Korea keep in mind if they want to skate there? Well, first, they have time. So that's because it will be at Seoul Plaza until February the 11th Mm. so they don't have to rush (laughs) the ice rink will be open from 10am to 9.30pm from Sundays to Thursdays but the closing time will be extended to 11pm on Fridays Saturdays and on the holidays it is a pretty cheap activity um, as the entrance fee is only 1,001 which is like 80 cents Mm. and helmets and knee pads are provided for free however the article mentions that all skaters must wear gloves and if you don't have any you would have to rent a pair for 1,500 Korean won so that's uh, just over a dollar and it looks like there could be uh, a lot more on offer at Seoul Plaza throughout the winter. There will be activities like mini Olympics, esports, magic shows, and holographic performances. <laughs> wow, so it sounds like the city is pulling out all the stops this yes. year. So, when would be a good time to go? I would say this Friday, uh, the first day, there will be an opening ceremony, and visitors will be able to see a figure skating performance and a performance by the percussion group Rap Percussion. Uh, Seoul Mayor Oh Sehun will uh, attend and deliver congratulatory, congratulatory messages. Messages. And the nice thing is that visitors on that day can use the ice rink for free. Mm. But I'm sure because of that, it will be very busy that day. So keep that in mind. Yes, also very cold <laughs> right. yes, as that's well. True. So yeah, that's to keep in mind as well. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our next article. What do you have for us? Uh, it's Kim Hyun's article in the business section of the Korea Herald. Incheon International Airport has announced its goals for 2024. So any of our listeners who plan on using the airport next year might want to take a look at this article and see what could be in store for them. There are quite few services uh, that will start next year. Okay, so can you walk us through some of the notable services that we could see? Sure. Uh, There are four criteria the airport wants to focus on. So that's sustainability, operational efficiency, productivity and passenger experience. Uh, First, getting to and from the airport could become more convenient as it uh, is expanding transport connectivity. That means more late night buses, uh, securing access uh, to the new GTXD subway line that is set to start next year. 
Also, there will be a smart duty-free service. Uh, now passengers have to pick up pre-purchased items from departure pickup desks, but from the second half of next year, they will be able to pick them directly uh, from the store. Right, so that's in order to help people save more time then. Exactly, and this last one can be very convenient service that will save time as well. There will be an easy drop service. This service allows passengers to check in their baggage in advance at multiple ca- uh, locations in Seoul. So that actually starts on the 29th of December. So yeah, these are some of the services the airport is looking to implement for uh, to help these passengers. You can read more about them and some other services I didn't mention in tomorrow's article. Yes, Incheon International is already considered one of the best airports in the world, mm. but it looks like it is doing all it can to try and keep up that reputation, trying to be on the forefront of all these uh, new advancements. Right. So yes, it's great to see, and hopefully uh, passengers will be able to uh, appreciate all that as well. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of heavy snow. During heavy snow, stay indoors and wear warm clothing. Make sure you have enough basic supplies in your home to get you through the bad weather. If you take any medication, make sure you have an adequate amount. Check on vulnerable neighbours and ensure they have the supplies they need. Conserve fuel, lower your thermostat, close off unused rooms and cover your windows. Make sure to have battery-operated torches, candles and matches in case of a power outage. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures.